Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we tell stories of people, the planet, and people on the planet. I'm Miles Traer. Climate change and population rise are realities of the Anthropocene. So it's natural to ask, how are we going to feed everyone on Earth in the future? One view is that maybe we're fine with the few staple crops we have now, that they're resilient to the changing climate. Another view is that our food system is not diversified enough and that we're over-reliant on crops like corn and rice. So today on the show, we're going to take a look at two specialty crops that may rise up and become critical for food security in the future. Here's producer Leslie Chang. Here's a fact that may surprise you. Around 75% of the calories humans consume today can be traced back to just four crops— Wheat, corn, soy, and rice. Now, some of this is indirectly consumed as feed grain for livestock. But still, the point is we are heavily reliant on a small number of crops to feed the world. When it comes to food security, we simply don't have a diverse portfolio, which means we're in a risky position. Given that we're expecting to add billions more people to the planet and that climate change is already upon us, It's very likely that in the near future, agriculture around the world will have to look a lot different than it does today. Some people are trying to improve upon our existing staple crops by breeding heat-resistant wheat or drought-tolerant corn. But there's also an effort underway to develop and scale other crops that might be more suitable for a warmer planet. And it's not just a question of what will grow well and yield reliable harvests. We also need crops that deliver major nutritional value. As we survey the landscape, there are a few special plants that may become more important for our future food security. Today on the show, we're going to focus on two of them, quinoa and amaranth. Let's start by talking about quinoa. When I say quinoa, you might think about the gourmet foodie scene. But believe it or not, it has the potential to become a major staple food. 
Back in 2014, journalist Lisa Hamilton explored the hidden story of this crop in an award-winning article called The Quinoa Coral. I started off being interested in issues around uh, intellectual property rights with regard to plant genetic resources. And a friend of mine suggested, you should look into quinoa. And at first I thought, why would I look into quinoa? You know, the interesting stuff is happening with corn. It's happening around wheat and around, you know, these, these major crops that really matter. Well, when he suggested quinoa, all I knew was that it was sort of a fad food. And immediately I got interested when I learned that it's much more than sort of a fad food. It really is a superfood. Quinoa is fairly new to the American dinner table, but it was first domesticated thousands of years ago. And more recently, relatively speaking anyway, quinoa was cultivated by the Incas, the same civilization that bred and developed our favorite starchy tuber, the potato. When Francisco Pizarro and his army of conquistadors took the Inca Empire in the 1500s, they had a chance to pick and choose from Inca crops. What the Spanish saw was that there were valuable foods there. They brought potatoes back to Europe, and um, those, of course, have spread and become essentially the fifth most important food in the world. Quinoa was held down because it was so powerful. It was so powerful in terms of feeding the armies of the Incas. It was such a pow- so powerful nutritionally, but it was also so powerful culturally and spiritually that it said the Spanish um, sort of did away with quinoa. The conquistadors forbade the Incas from cultivating it. But in an alternate universe, quinoa could have made it back to the old world and had a very different history. People have made the case that had quinoa not been suppressed by the Spaniards, it would have toured the world the way the potatoes have and become one of those essential foods. Instead, we think of quinoa as a specialty food rather than a staple crop. Today, though, its popularity is on the rise, in part because of its numerous health benefits. Its nutritional properties are extraordinary various vitamins, various minerals, things like folic acid that you never even think about. But I think most importantly, both in terms of nutrition and in terms of global food security, it has a complete protein. So it has all of the amino acids that you need to have a complete protein. So making it on par with animal protein, which is essential for people living in marginal environments where uh, you you can't just go to the store and buy a carton of milk, where protein is... Um, is precious and the land does not produce it easily. So this means that like if um, if you just had quinoa plus like some vegetables and like other fiber you could potentially just not ever have animal protein and you'd be fine? Potentially, yeah. Hence, superfood. Quinoa is showing up on restaurant menus and grocery store shelves all across America. But is it on its way to becoming a staple crop of the future? One reason to think so is that quinoa has the potential to be climate-ready. Its home is in the Andes, in the harsh environment of the Altiplano spanning Bolivia, Peru, and Ecuador. It's an area where the lowest points are 11,000 feet in elevation. Um, The sun is very harsh. uh, The air is thin. Moisture is scarce. The soils are generally very poor, and so you have a sort of ultra-marginal growing environment. And 
that's where this plant grew up and was shaped. Um, so it has this incredible resilience in terms of drought and lean soil. These traits could all be very advantageous in a warmer world. For a single crop, quinoa delivers a lot of value. But first, it needs to be bred and developed. Now, this is an oversimplification, but all of our other staple crops had to go through decades of experimentation and breeding so that they could be adapted for a variety of climates, soils, and conditions all over the world. Essentially, this is how crop breeding works. Agronomists take various samples with characteristics that they want, like pest resistance or heat tolerance, and try to breed plants that have the best combination of good traits. And in order to develop any plant, breeders need the opportunity to tinker with the germplasm, which is basically the genetic material. Developing crop seeds requires many diverse samples of the plant, each with its own slightly different genes and characteristics. If they have a diverse array of genetics to play with, scientists can develop seeds that are suitable for a lot of different geographies and climate conditions. But today, the vast majority of quinoa still comes from the Andes, because the crop hasn't yet been bred for conditions outside of the Altiplano. It's terribly susceptible to diseases and to pests that, um, it, that don't exist in the Andes. So in order to grow it outside of the Andes, researchers have found that it requires um, quite a bit of careful breeding to develop that tolerance to all of these different stresses. Unfortunately, though, the quinoa-producing countries are reluctant to share their germplasm. Bolivia, in particular, has been especially protective. But it wasn't always this way. I think it was right in the late 1980s, this one geneticist from Bolivia named Emigdio Bayon left Bolivia, came to visit the United States, and brought with him 300 different types of quinoa, germplasm, and shared them. And he shared them with all kinds of people. Uh, they ended up with the USDA and the USDA gene bank. He shared them with researchers at Colorado State, with farmers. Those researchers at Colorado State University used the germplasm and started developing new quinoa seeds. And in 1994, they applied for a patent on a particular strain of quinoa that they had developed in the lab. This patent angered both the Bolivian government and farmers. They saw the patent as a way of asserting ownership. And from their perspective, quinoa is a natural resource that belongs to Bolivia. So from that point on, the country stopped sharing its germplasm with the rest of the world. The question that comes up and that divides people and leads to uh, conflict is who owns it and who owns the right to use it um, and decide its future. And that's where the story of quinoa becomes much more than the story of just quinoa. It becomes a story of basically every food in the world. Who owns the right to use quinoa and benefit from its cultivation? That is a huge question, considering we live in a world of intellectual property rights. There are patents and trademarks on everything, and that extends to the world of crop breeding. The default has become, um, if you don't claim it, if you don't own it and hold it tight to your chest, someone else will. The issue of intellectual property rights and patenting natural resources is a huge can of worms. But Lisa says that for some Bolivians, this is not just about money. 
In her reporting, she traveled to Bolivia and met with farmers who spoke about heritage and about protecting their cultural knowledge of quinoa passed down through the generations. One farmer in particular made a strong impression. He took me to the top of a mountainside overlooking a volcano named Tunupa and said, essentially, this volcano god gave us quinoa. And, you know, he said a whole lot more than that. But essentially, the message was, this is not just a cool superfood. This is not even just, you know, our staple food. This is us. This is who we are. And when you talk about patents and genetics and ownership, You're not just talking about genetics and ownership and intellectual property rights. You're talking about our souls and our culture and our ancestors. So at the moment, when it comes to quinoa, we're at an impasse. Altiplano farmers and governments don't want to share quinoa germplasm with other nations who want to develop the crop. The food sovereignty interests of Bolivia, Peru, and Ecuador come at the price of genetic diversity for the rest of the world. Until the Andean countries change their stance, quinoa is unlikely to become a true contender as a crop that could help solve the global food security challenges we'll face in the coming decades. But quinoa is just one option we have. There are other crops we can try to develop to diversify our food portfolio. One crop people have gotten excited about recently is called amaranth. It's actually related to quinoa, they're in the same family, and they both went through similar historical trials and tribulations. We reached out to Professor Rob Myers of the University of Missouri. He's an expert on amaranth. It's one of those plants or really food sources that kind of disappeared from history. It was used a lot by the Aztecs in Mexico. And then when the Spanish conquistadors arrived, uh, they seem, from what we know from history, to have suppress the use of amaranth. Those pestilential Spanish conquistadors. At it again. So it kind of was forgotten about and then started to make a comeback in the 1970s as a food grain. Uh, It's mainly used in breads, cereal-type products, not unlike wheat would be used. And uh, it's very high in protein. So it mainly shows up as something that people interested in nutrition, either for their health in Western societies, or maybe people that are working with malnourished children where they're trying to introduce more nutrition. So amaranth seeds can be eaten as a grain, but the leaves of the plant are also edible, and they have a lot of vitamins and nutrients. Amaranth is a two-for-one deal, both grain and vegetable. And if we're looking for nutritious, climate-ready crops for a hungry planet, amaranth has a lot to offer. One of the pluses of amaranth for an international crop is compared to quinoa that does best at either high elevations or cool climates and thus is pretty restricted to the parts of the world it does well in, amaranth is actually quite widely adapted. It can be grown at low elevations or high elevations. It can be grown in humid areas of the tropics or it can be grown in drier parts of the western U.S. So it's quite widely adapted. But for now, at least, amaranth is still a pretty low-profile crop, and not many plant geneticists are developing varieties. If you looked across the entire globe, there are not more than the number of people you could count on one hand working on amaranth genetic diversity. 
The good news is there's wonderful genetic diversity in amaranth as a food plant, both for grain and as a vegetable crop. And so with a very modest investment, we could make a lot more progress. Another big advantage is that amaranth doesn't come with all the geopolitical baggage of quinoa. But right now, the development of amaranth is proceeding slowly. In terms of the issue of amaranth and malnutrition, a lot of the progress is being made not by large governmental groups, but by small nonprofits that are tackling this on a shoestring. And I'll just give you an example of one that I have worked with a little. It's a small nonprofit in in Mexico uh, called Puente Al Salud Communitaria. And they have made a big effort to uh, help farmers directly in Mexico learn how to grow amaranth, find the right varieties to grow, learn how to cook with amaranth, make it part of their diet with corn. And again, they've gone from having very few farmers that knew anything about amaranth to, to, to really uh, working with hundreds in their particular area, but, but triggering work by thousands across Mexico. We wanted to know more about what these experiments with amaranth look like on the ground. So we reached out to Catherine Lorenz, the co-founder of the nonprofit Puente a la Salud Comunitaria which means bridge to community health. And the na- as the name says, in the early days, really what we were trying to do is, is look at some of these indigenous communities and see some of the needs and really bridge them to the resources that would help meet those needs. Puente focuses their efforts in Oaxaca, Mexico. And one of the biggest issues the indigenous community faces there is malnutrition. According to Catherine, when Puente was founded in the early 2000s, up to 40% of children under the age of five were chronically malnourished. Catherine and her team started looking for strategies to help alleviate malnutrition, and they landed on amaranth, which could diversify and add much-needed protein to the Oaxacan diet. Catherine says that in Mexico, amaranth can be found in the high-end grocery stores in wealthy communities. But the farming families who suffer most from malnutrition have a much harder time accessing it. So Puente works with local farmers to increase their amaranth production. One of the things we promote most in the farming families and with the farmers that we work with is that they keep a certain amount of their cultivation for themselves and their families, and then they sell the rest. And we have seen that work really well. Um, They do value it enough to keep the amount that will help feed their family and then sell that extra piece. Puente also runs nutrition education and cooking workshops in Oaxaca, teaching families how to incorporate amaranth and other healthy foods into their diet. But they found that it's not always easy to change someone's diet for the long term. It's very, very easy, we've seen, to get people to try it. But that's not going to make a real difference in health. Um, We feel that the importance is to get amaranth up to a point where you're eating enough that it actually has the potential to positively impact your health. So going from trying it to eating it multiple times a week in a, in a substantial amount is, is a big jump. While Catherine knows amaranth is just one tool for addressing malnutrition in Oaxaca, Puente has seen some successes in the 10 plus years they've been working with indigenous communities. Hundreds more farming families now plant amaranth, and many regularly incorporate it into their diets. And if we want to develop this nutritious crop into a more prominent staple food, it's programs like Puente that are contributing the early groundwork right now. The malnutrition in Oaxaca is just one example among many food-insecure regions around the globe. 
Agriculture has made incredible leaps and bounds in the past century, making it possible to feed billions of people. But the crops, techniques, and infrastructure we've developed in the past few decades have not benefited everyone around the world equally. And those imbalances could get worse in the future. Wheat, corn, soy, and rice are able to feed many people. But if we don't start diversifying our agricultural portfolio, there could be a long, challenging road ahead. Here's Rob Myers again. The bottom line is if we put all of our eggs into the basket of a few commodity food crops like corn and wheat and rice, that's going to hurt us in the long run not to have greater biodiversity. We're, we're starting to understand that things like the health of our soil and the incidence of pests are tied closely to over-reliance on just a few crops. Maybe we're growing you know, wheat over and over and over in a particular area, or we're growing just corn and soybeans in the middle of the U.S., or just rice in Southeast Asia. And that reliance on just one or two food plants in many areas uh, causes, again, declines in the health of the soil ecosystem. It causes greater occurrence of pests, maybe overuse of irrigation water. And so as we look at sustainability, we need more diversity in food plants, as well as the benefits they can provide from uh, nutrition or other traits that we desire from the foods that we're growing. Who knows what our agricultural system will look like 30 years from now? Quinoa and amaranth flew under the radar for hundreds of years, and their stories highlight the pressures we're likely to face in the future. There's no single superfood that will fix everything. We'll need all the options we can find to achieve food security. But whether it's these two grains or something else, are we taking the necessary steps today to prepare for the future? Can we even imagine a global food system that looks radically different from the one we have today? Maybe it still seems too early to be asking these questions, but our future may depend on it. Generation Anthropocene is produced by Leslie Chang, Mike Osborne, and me, Miles Trayer. Isha Salian is our production intern, who also contributed writing and production to this week's episode. We encourage you to check out Lisa Hamilton's article, The Quinoa Coral, available online at Harper's Magazine. If you want to learn more about Puente and their work in Oaxaca, Mexico, check them out at puentemexico.org. They have a lot of great information and also beautiful photos of the Oaxacan farming families and the amaranth they grow. Special thanks this week to Professor Jack Juvik at the University of Illinois for answering our questions about crop breeding. We also want to thank Tom Hayden and Pam Matson. Our theme music is by Maserati. Our website is genanthro.com, and you can also find us on Twitter, at genanthropocene. So that you know, we're going to be wrapping up this season soon. Next week's episode will be the last one until early 2017, so please tune in. Thanks as always for listening. We'll see you next week. Hence, superfood. <laughs> was it too excited? It was like medium excited. It, we could be really excited. We could be really excited. Okay, like how about... Like Superman, like superfood. Superfood! <laughs> yeah, that's what... <laughs>